listening to Adoption, Fostering and Tea from the UK's LGBT plus adoption and fostering charity, New Family Social. Find us at newfamilysocial.org.uk. I'm Tor, and this week I'm going to be having a cup of tea with Anna and talking about adopting from abroad. Hi Anna, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Excellent. (laughs) So um, you've got a really interesting story and actually quite an unusual story amongst the people I know. Can you tell me first of all a little bit about yourself? Yes, I've been a long time, long term teacher and um, I suppose had lots of benefits in my upbringing. Never thought I'd adopt and uh, came to a point in my life where I thought I would. Okay. <laughs> and, um, you know, having spent all that time with other people's children, it kind of felt a natural progression. My work's changed since because of being an adopter. But uh, yeah, I've had pretty full kind of enriched life I suppose until I became an adoptive parent and then that, that's kind of a new phase of my life. That's really interesting so tell me when you adopted and how you decided to do it and then how you decided to do it the way that you did. Yeah really I'd been in a relationship with someone who had uh, two boys and having spent quite a lot well nine years with them my decide, my decision to still have a child had not gone away I still wanted a child myself um, we tried the fertility route and that wasn't working and then I came around to the idea of adopting so uh, I, I then interviewed various and spoke with various social workers and plumped on the idea of adopting from abroad rather than a domestic adoption. That's really interesting so what year would that have been that you were going through that process of phoning around and thinking about how to do it? Yeah I actually started originally uh, in 1999 right <laughs> and uh, the social worker who came to see me uh, went off ill and I didn't know that I'd be waiting that long and realized she was never going to come back basically mm. and um, but the process took longer because of the country I chose where there were blockages and problems but also there were some personal factors in my own life my, my father dying and um, my relationship ended so I had to bring myself into a the best place to go ahead with the adoption yeah I, I see what you mean and of course although we talk about the point at which same-sex couples could adopt and therefore we think oh LGBT people couldn't adopt before then yeah of course it was about being a couple that prior to that you had to be married so I guess given that you weren't married that's why in that year you could be looking at adoption if I've understood you what you're saying right correct me if I'm wrong certainly then uh, in that part in the southwest of, of England, uh, being gay itself was a problem, A, for uh, fertility treatment. Mm. So I'd had to go to London and travel to get uh, inseminations. But also the whole idea of adoption by a, a, you know same-sex couples or a single gay adopter was a problem. Yes, yeah, so back in the, in the years that we're talking about, around 1999, yeah. a gay person could legally adopt if they were single. But they they couldn't a couple could not legally adopt. They could not both adopt. Right. But okay. In terms of barriers, absolutely. In terms of in practice being able to, very, very different. Yeah, you put that really well. Yeah. In practice, there was a, a prejudice, an unspoken prejudice anyway. And the social workers I spoke with said that it was very likely that I would be put at the bottom of the list. Yes. I started the process when I was in a relationship and my advice when then was you would get multiple siblings 
or children who had severe disabilities, or you'd be lucky if to get anyone. Yes. Um, and so, and and the same as a single adopter would be the same. That would be possibly even worse. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There was a definite hierarchy, wasn't there, of who could even try, and then what what kinds of children they would consider you for. And of course, mm. that's really dehumanising on both sides of the coins, both for the LGBT person yeah. trying to adopt, and also for the children that they've kind of ranked into this order of desirability if you like Mm -hmm. you know so yeah quite a horrible horrible system really yeah so you decided to adopt from abroad and so how did you even know that that was a possibility and how did you go about it the last social worker I spoke with said I think you would be better going abroad okay um so I then was more sparing with the truth and um approached it quite differently with a determination to find a child somehow um I just plumped on a country that I thought might be possibly one that I would feel happy with. So when you say sparing with the truth, I guess you mean you weren't out in the process, is that yeah. right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think near the end, the people involved were aware, yes. and I felt happier with that, mm. but officially nobody knew. Yes. And I think back then you had to play that game, didn't you? There really wasn't there it was really hard. really an option otherwise. Yeah, but it was the same at work too, mm. uh, working with children. I didn't, I, I didn't wear my heart on my sleeve. I wasn't out as such, but if by the end of working in that school, I'd been outed. So yes, <laughs> so, okay, well, you know, but uh, yeah, it was an interesting time, really. That coming up to a more more acceptance of same sex couples, and certainly same sex couples adopting. But I was at that stage where it wasn't going to be easy. So yes. just took the most realistic, practicable route. Yes, yeah. And so um, what country did you adopt from and how did you choose that? I chose Russia mm-hmm. out of pure ignorance, probably. <laughs> um, but I'd, I'd been lucky enough to learn some Russian at school. Mm-hmm. I'd always thought it was an interesting country. And that was a totally irrational kind of emotional decision. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I kind of thought somewhere that maybe maybe I, if I had a child from Russia, they might look possibly like they were mine. Right, yes. So, you know, then being gay... And maybe a bit alternative anyway. Uh, I just wanted the child to have some sort of uh, anonymity, yes. some sort of cover. If I you understand like. what you mean. Yeah, that it's not obvious they're adopted from across the street. Yes, 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 I understand what you mean. And so, um, so you chose Russia, and I guess did you have to be assessed in the UK and then yeah. matched in Russia? Talk me through how that worked. Yeah. So it was the normal home study mm-hmm. where I'd paid a certain amount. Of possibly a thousand pounds to the local authority so they could come and interview me over a period of time and work through the process and then the process involved and I would imagine it's similar now a choice of an adoption agency because Russia was not a recognized and designated country in the UK right because of refusal to sign the Hague Convention yes am I correct in understanding that you were assessed by a local authority in the UK and effectively approved and then handed to the agency in the States? Is that how it worked? I can't fully remember the order of events, but I believe I ran them sort of at the same time as each other. But the uh, UK process began first, where I had the home study over a period of time, going through the process and answering questions and all all that and keeping a diary. Um, And at some point during that, I... I started, I contacted the agency. Um, the social worker I worked with actually told me which two agencies I could work with that right. in their experience were uh, sensible and helpful. 
Gosh, okay. So so you went to one of those two agencies. Yeah. And I guess they started looking for a child, is that right? Yeah, they they needed because of Russia being a highly bureaucratic country, and in any case, I imagine anyone with a duty of care for vulnerable people, children, there's gonna be a lot of paperwork and boxes that need to be ticked, but it's highly bureaucratic. I literally have a pile of paper higher than not as high as my shoulder, but up to my chest wow. with paperwork. Um, so it was an awful lot of, of proofs of proof of pay, proof of health, you name it, and and requests for proof of health in areas that we might not uh, ask for, you know. So uh, that was quite hard to get. And, and also how you present it to that country was hard to get. So they wanted stamps on everything. So to have my doctor say she hasn't got cancer, you know, she's she's not on drugs. She's got a clean bill of health and all those things. They needed separate specialists to actually validate that. Wow. But they wanted it on a piece of paper with a stamp. Okay, yes. And so that took quite a lot of time, having reports and references from people as well, needing my referees took some time. But, um, yeah, but I, and in fact, a lot of that paperwork um, in terms of health, I had to do it at least three times over because Russia kept shutting its boundaries, then opening them again, shutting them again. So it'd have to be updated, which is quite hard. And in the end, I, I paid, I think it was twelve or $1,500 American dollars to have all the tests done again in St. Wow. Petersburg anyway. Oh, no. God. <laughs> because they didn't like the format I'd presented it in, which wow. I tried every which way to please them, but... Did yeah. you have to get everything translated? Was that your responsibility or did the agency do the that? The agency did that. Right. So there was um, a doctor and a translator. Okay. Yeah. And how long did that process take from, say, beginning to, well, being in Russia, let's say. Let's not jump too far ahead, but yeah. how long? Yeah. So I I would have been, yeah. So Dimitri was born in December 2004. Mm -hmm. So I was already... I think, yeah, I was going out to Russia. I made five visits in total to establish some sort of residency uh, so that legally they could approve me adopting him. So I went out five times during which he'd been born and was waiting. Really. Yes. But Did you know about him yet? I didn't. No. And it was not until August of 2005 that I, I got the, the referral eventually. So you were at this for six years yeah. prior to talking yeah. realistically about a specific child or specific yeah. children. Yeah. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah. Did you feel like giving up at any point during that? Or? It's so interesting because I went with other adopters um, out to Russia and yeah, of the two families I got to know, one fell by the wayside and got a dog right? <laughs> because they decided that actually looking after children would be too hard for them. Okay. And the others adopted a, a girl from the same orphanage. That's interesting. Yeah. So that was... Um, so you were going out to Russia back and forward, back and forward to establish mm. this residency. But I guess still not at that stage talking about any specific children. Is that correct? It was August right. 2005. that I was on holiday and, yes. and a, a picture was sent through. To on me. holiday in Russia? or No, I was, on, oh. I was, I was in Croatia. Okay, <laughs> forget about it, don't yeah. you? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. And... Uh, uh, with my uh, new partner yes and um, they sent a picture and I'd always asked that ignorantly as an adopter I assumed when I'd been told that I might have a disabled child mm. that 
I'd thought I would I would prefer not to have a disabled child yes. because of working for so long with children of all so many sorts that I thought I felt I had a lot to offer and a pretty able person yes um because of all my opportunities I've had and so on so I'd, I'd ignorantly assumed that disability meant physical disability yes um and um they sent me a picture telling me that there was a chance that my son they, there was no HIV test that he might have horseshoe kidneys and he had a hydrocele on his testicles which is actually pretty innocent and goes usually now I've learned yes um so I paused and um I sent his information to a doctor in America and to my doctor in the UK and said what do you think mm. and my doctor in the UK moved me the most because he said this is your chance go right. for it if he's got horseshoe kidneys we can give him antibiotics if it's the rest of his life. He'll have a life yes. and you'll have a child. Okay. Yeah. And I should go back a bit and say that the urge to adopt, that is such a strange one because having realised that my fertility wasn't up to it and I wasn't going to conceive, uh, I think it was an echo from something quite emotional in my childhood where my best friend was adopted. Ah, interesting. And I lost her to adoption where her family broke up she went and she was uh, inverted commas adopted by her grandparents and right. I never saw her again so I think somewhere a loss was registered for me yeah and I saw that as somehow relinking a circle I'm sure there was something like that at work that's interesting mm, yeah so so your doctor had said that this child is your child and so then what what did you do from Croatia or when you got back well I showed my partner the picture what do you think? And um, the Russian side, the adoption agency, were just like, you've got to move fast now because if you don't want to, somebody else will. Yes. And so I think I took a little bit long for them because this was a, a great emotional pause for me in a way, yes. like this is really it. And um, I got back to them and said, yes. It was all like full on from then because yes. that was in the school holiday and from going from being, as you are as a teacher, and people, teachers without children, you just, you're ready for a big shock, although yes. you don't realise it, you know, you think you've got a busy life, ah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and suddenly the shift is from paperwork to person. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, so you'd said yes, and then what did you have to do? How does the process move? So then I'd said yes, and so then I had to do all the clearing up with work mm. and get adoption approval, which I'd all, was already in process that I was going to take six months off yes. to adopt I'd also had lined up ideas to work part-time um, in fact I dropped down my from my head of faculty status just before ready so that I, they wouldn't let me go part-time as a, a core subject leader so I, I stepped back down I was doing I think in a minority action group in my school and teaching so uh, I thought I think I'm ready and I'll just have six months off and then you know let's see how we go from there um, it meant getting my house ready. I'd managed to, because of the breakup of my long-term ago relationship, I'd moved, I'd stayed with family for a while. And so I had to make sure I'd managed to get a house of my own because I, I knew I wanted to do this on my own and not overload family with it. Um, and um, so that was ready. Yeah, and it was just, uh, I was looking forward to it. I mean, naively, I just thought about all the positives. Yes, <laughs> well, of <laughs> you know? course. And it was, it was wonderful. Yes. It was wonderful, you know. So, I can remember marking coursework, though, being out in St. Petersburg 
prior to collecting Dimitri and um, thinking I must get this coursework mark because you know there were kids who needed the results yes. basically and how my priorities changed after that it was just amazing that's so interesting yeah. so you obviously flew out you were marking your coursework and stuff yeah but how long were you there before you first saw him I first saw him now let me think I believe it was in October that I met him so how long had you been there at that stage? I'd, this was a visit. Oh, I see. So, so, so days. Yeah, so I had to then do... I'd, I'd done one initial visit before August, I believe, possibly in March. Then, once now I was matched to Dimitri, I then did another visit, and that was in October, and I wasn't allowed to see him then. Uh, then in, or in November, I went again... And I had uh, I, I met him, and then I went. It was either October or November. I met him, and then I did the court case definitely in November, November okay. the fifth, two thousand five. Tell me about that first meeting. Oh, just well, I've got a video actually, and uh, you know, it's just well, the, the journey there was incredible. Five hundred miles of snow. Wow. In a in a taxi. Oh, <laughs> and you can't speed in Russia. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just fish markets uh, all the way. Trees, snow and fish markets for 500 miles. And the adoption agent took me up and a doctor. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I just was... I'd seen pictures of him anyway. And uh, I was aware what a small child for his age he was. Mm. Uh, I was. I noticed how clean the orphanage was, how it looked like it had been riven by machine gun fire, where the snow has wrought its havoc on the outside of all the buildings there. Yes. And the, I was a bit of an anomaly to the Russian uh, orphanage workers, and they were talking about me. I could pick up bits of it because of bits of Russian. Yes. Um, they'd be making jokes about me. Of course, we've missed out that I did my medical again, Right, in, yes. in Russia as well. And that was also quite interesting, listening to what they were saying to me. <laughs> I think they were implying that I was the mistress of the doctor. <laughs> and, and, but, you know, so, but it was all in good humour. Yes. It, and, and also the whole process of bribery that went on as we, as we proceeded, you know. So even when I was in the orphanage, you know, the boxes of chocolates and the desk lamps and the keyboards were being handed over. So nice. strange, yes. uh, you know. Um, I think that first visit, I took a suitcase full of vitamins that would survive at low temperatures yes. for the orphanage. And I suppose just a sense of his vulnerability. How old was he then? He was uh, 10 months. Okay, so very yeah. little. Yeah. And I think just seeing, you know, you know when a child's thriving. Yes. And, and he wasn't at death's door, nothing like that, but just the immense pathos really of a child that vulnerability that vulnerable yes I think and how hard it is when you look at all those other children who are waiting for a home yes you know you'd look and there'd be 10 kids train potty training all at the same time all all trying to charm you at 100 meters yes that's very hard yes I'm sure um but um I, I noted how curious he was mm. so he was crawling around and he was just picking up bits of fluff on the carpet, going right round the room, trying to find things. Uh, it was hard for him to do much else. Sitting up was quite hard. I could see the back of his head being where he was lying a lot, where it had been worn away. Yes. The hair had gone, yes. wasn't there. 
I got my first jokes out of him then. Oh, that's nice. Where I'd, on the video I'd seen, he was pronouncedly left-handed when he was yes. getting stimulation. He was waving his left hand up and down in as a response to the to people stimulating him, all in Russian, obviously. Yes. And um, and when I cuddled him and and started talking with him, that was the feeling. Though it's really hard to think. How dare I pick up this child? They've got no choice about this. Yes, that was hard. And knowing that his his immediate sister had been adopted the year before into a Russian family, uh, a sense that I was separating a family. And I remember you know, that. I remember that myself. I remember feeling that by quirks of fate and decisions that I'd made, I was changing the absolute course of someone's life. And that by selecting that child instead of that one it changes one, the other changes differently. It, it's weird to sort of wield that much power, really. It just, that's I, I found trying it to really dis- disconcerting, yeah. That's what I'm trying to describe. Mm. And uh, who am I? Who yeah. was I to make that decision? Mm. You know, um, you know. now he's much older. It's it's interesting to try and access that with him, you know. Uh, Did you struggle with removing him from his country and culture? Was that's, that, yeah. Because you seem politically aware and so on and I guess that must have been a real weighing up of is you know is the cost this worth the benefit of this at one point I spoke with the adoption agents I said what if I gave my 23,000 pounds to the mum yes he said she'd buy a flat right and that still shocks me now you know that's the, the amount of deprivation and desperation for women in that culture is something we can't, con- them, we couldn't conceive of, yes. I don't think. I was watching the young women coming back with middle-aged European men on the plane. Mm. You know, there's such an imbalance of power yes. then between women and men. And you hear now that laws have just been reintroduced in Russia where men can hit their wives and as long as they don't hospitalise them, it's allowed. You know, it's... Uh, or any member of their family, I believe. So it's it is a different country, you know. I watched a car collision while I was there, and not a major one, but they remained at the site of the collision for four hours. You know, there was a sense that the first person to leave would be the guilty one, waiting for the police to arrive. It's just a very different country. I'm ignorant really of what was going on, but you know, I could pick up those things. I know the adopters in the in the taxi before us got stopped and all their paperwork taken and they got held up for an hour. Right. And, uh, you know, they had to bribe the police to get their paperwork back. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's a different country. I would hope it's moved on. I don't know. Mm. And so that first visit, though, so you obviously interacted and so on, but you had to leave leaving him there yeah. again, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. I can't imagine that was easy. Do you know, it, it was so painful. I've almost wiped it right. because I, I didn't know how to deal with it. Yes. Um, but I knew that I was going to bring him home. Yes. And that's the way I dealt with it. And going to the court then to, to secure it legally was, was a good thing. But that was another visit. Yeah, so you had to go all visit. the way home yeah. and go all the way back all again. All the way back. And then to court. Yeah, yeah. And was that a formality or could it have gone either way at that stage? It could have gone either way. Right. And I know a previous couple where the woman had been questioned about her use of antidepressants. Mm. She, they were Israeli family. And she couldn't quite grasp what they were saying. She panicked and said the wrong thing and the, the adoption was off. Wow. And, that, and I, I still yes. can't believe that, you know. But 
but they were pleased the, the judge I had was a woman who they said was fair and reasonable and and uh, you know I got through I said that and yet the right times yes. luckily but there was a, a, a culture of his hostility towards intercountry adoptions within Russia at the time mm. because there was a really bad case of a child having been adopted to Canada and scolded and to the point where she died yes. a child with special needs and I mean I don't know the details so it was understandable you know I, on one of my journeys I spoke with a local who lived in that region of Russia and uh, she said, it is a bad thing you do. And I said, well, no, I'm a teacher. I've, I've helped my partner bring up children. You know, I, I want to help a child. And by the end of the conversation, she said, it is a good thing you do. Okay. And in fact, that family, when I came to take Dimitri from the country, turned up at the hotel and she said, we come, me, my family, uh, with a four by four, we take you to St. Petersburg. Oh, how lovely. So they offered yeah, me a lift. Fine. Yes. <laughs> Which I, I didn't accept because I had the interpreter and the doctor with me, you know. Yes. I was going by train. Nonetheless, as a gesture, that's... Yeah, it yes. was so, you know, but, but you, I think you have to be so careful in handling a vulnerable child, who you speak with, who you connect with, and sticking to the official channels seemed the most safe and sensible thing. Yes. However emotionally exciting it was to be sort of celebrated by a Russian family. Yes. You know, I yes. just did the safe thing. Oh, of course. Yes, indeed. So you went to court and then you went back to the orphanage to pick yep. him up. Yeah. Was that a very short visit? Was it a case of turn up and pick him up and leave? Or was there some sort of longer process around that? It was a, a 10 or 12 day stay in northern Russia. We were waiting in Petersburg until the time when we'd be called, when I would be called. Um, so I brought a friend and and my partner, and we were waiting. And um, it, I, it was a really funny story because we were eating vegetarian Christmas lunch in Cafe Idiot in St. Petersburg. Right. It's honestly called that. And um, I got a phone call which said, please come now. Another child wants in on the orphanage, so please come now. On Christmas Day? Yeah. Wow. So I, I walked out of the restaurant cursing slightly because <laughs> to have a child for that long before I could go to the embassy and get visas yeah. in a in a Russian hotel, which is like 1950s plumbing, Yes. you know, at minus 30 is oh, not gosh. a joke. Yes. You know, a child who's removed from their yes. surroundings and um, and uh, who I, you don't know yes. yourself. You know, I would have ideally wanted to take him home. Yes. Um so uh, I went, and that was very moving. You know, I can remember that. You know, the train journey, the being in the Russian taxi with the beads swinging, with Russian music playing as we came up to the orphanage, and uh, going in. And uh, the interpreter said she'd film for me, but it, the, the camera was turned off at one point. Okay. Um, and there was. Dimitri waiting and I'd taken clothes so they took all his clothes off and left me to dress him um, they gave me a coke bottle with some formula milk in stoppered with cotton wool right and that was for my I, I had him back at the hotel for a few hours to wait for the train and then we caught a late night train so I had poor little Dimitri on a bed about uh, one foot six wide a seat really and I just sheltered him inside me and he cried all the way and oh, most of the milk spilt yes yes <laughs> so it was not a good start in that respect but I noticed 
it's quite moving as he came out of the orphanage, the marina, the social worker said, Tospidania, Dimitri, you know, goodbye. I, I just really moving. And I was, I was quite aware that we stopped somewhere that was the local marketplace where they told me his mother worked. And I saw a, a gifts going in. And I just wondered if that was them telling her. I don't know. Right. So then he was very hypervigilant hyper in the taxi. I noticed looking everywhere. Yes. Um, by then he was sitting up and uh but playing with me in the hotel uh very very worn out and disheveled on the on the train yes. you know not and a baby not able to cling to me because he didn't know me yes and so it's hard to comfort him and then getting off the train on boxing day um pretty worn out at 7am in the morning and going back to a hotel room in St Petersburg and he had his first proper bath in a, a shower tray because they blanket bathed them right, then yes. at the orphanage. And I can remember him just looking at these bubbles yes. and very, very silent in a bit of shock. Mm, I'm sure. But pretty soon sort of standing up in his cot and looking over and, and uh, yeah, yeah, and went so, really well. And I guess then in the days that followed, you flew back to the UK. Yeah. So, yeah, and I can still see, I've got a picture of him with this beautiful sky behind him. Um, a sunset approaching and uh, you know there he was you know traveling to a new country I'm, I'm unaware of the significance of that really yes you know but but then I kind of really felt actually know that love is 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 the best thing that you know and and it's the best he was going to get he had to have me you know let's hope it was good enough you know <laughs> well, <it did. laughs> and so how have things been since obviously many many years have passed since yeah how are things how's that journey been yeah well initially I dreamt I was flying for six months so it was a huge must have been a huge surge of dopamine and uh, <laughs> serotonin going through my body um a great relief for me at not having to work full-time anymore mm. and the initial stages were absolute doddled quite honestly because I was not working and so I could just focus on him and actually recover myself professionally yes. if I'm really honest and uh, I suppose we hit a bit of a hard time because my relationship didn't work out but so by the time he was four my, my partner and I had split up but uh, no, it was lovely going to play groups, and uh, I then I was at the same time starting a new business so that I wouldn't have to go back full time to teaching, yes. so that I could be home a bit more. Mm. And he coped with other friendships, reception. He went through infants. You know, he coped very well. It wasn't until he was at junior school that I could see that the social side of education was going to be a challenge for right. him. And, and really, I could have been wiser about the school I chose. I was canny and I was a governor at the infant school. Um, so there was more of a vested interest, maybe, to differentiate. But I think they were just exceptionally good naturally. Yes. Uh, infant schools are also more nurturing. So, you know, he was just seen as a very healthy, energetic, fascinating child that he is. Yes. Um, and it, And I think then you know, shades of the workhouse, when you start preparing for SATs and things like that in primary school, um, that's when I had to really 
realised that he needed something different in terms of education. And that was harder for me probably because I come from mainstream education. Yes. You know, I've always been lucky enough to be able to differentiate for the kids who are different instinctively. Yes. But to understand the official pathways whereby you really do support your children with their differences and draw on their legal rights in order to give them the best. Yes. And that's what I've had to catch up on. Right. Yeah. And so how are you both doing now? Pretty well, pretty well. Um, yeah, he's much more independent at 16. We've had, the hardest thing was accepting, as I said, the loss of mainstream school. My ignorance, although a mainstream teacher of, of you know, I just thought the authority would help me out. And strangely, they left him at home for two years when mainstream didn't work out. Right. And so I had to give up my teaching role. Um, and reinvent myself with the business I've luckily started. That was the hardest, where we really had a melting point. It's like a crucible of questioning my parenting, working out who is this person really? Have I really understood him? I don't think I had. I think I'd assumed a lot, um, and I'd missed things. I'm I'm giving myself a hard time because I think it's excusable. I think trauma awareness was was much less then. Uh, all the Dan Hughes stuff that's been rolled out and the Pace stuff was not as in common parlance as much. I think we had Webster Stratton course recommended where you told the child to sit on the stair for a certain number of minutes for however many years they were. And and that really is not, in my opinion, the best approach. It's not helpful for most children, let alone children who've got trauma in their past. Um, So that was a huge melting pot and having to do it alone to accept I was going to give up work and stay at home with him, so have no apparent means of income Yes, as a loan adopter. Um, that was very challenging. Yeah. But my, like I knew I was going to adopt at some point, my gut instinct, despite all my insecurities and need to have status, need to have income, I just knew that was the right thing. I couldn't just let him flounder. I had to work out what was going on. And, you know, I look back now and actually hopefully adopters are told more now, you know, your child's going to have trauma and they're going to need something different. And actually it's okay to fail in some of the traditional expectations that you might have about children behaving exactly like this or conforming like this, that it's going to be a different journey, you know. So I'm glad that's more out there now. Um, And just taking a whole journey ourselves, both in coming closer I think, where Dimitri realised he ha- he was very close to me and very dependent. Thank you so much. It's lovely to hear about your journey. Thank you. I'd like to thank my guest today, Anna. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter at LGBT Adopt Foster and on Facebook search New Family Social or One Word. Visit our website at newfamilysocial.org.uk. Adoption, Fostering and Tea is produced by New Family Social. The presenter was me, Tor Doherty, with music from Matt Doherty. The producer was John Jenkins. We'll be back next week with more guests and more tea.